This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the caffeinated Simon Belanger. As you nod to that, we can agree. Uh, ch- cheers here to start the podcast with our afternoon coffees. Simone, we have <laughs> a dope episode today. I am going to talk about international stock market returns going through the developed markets country by country. Which countries have returned you know, good returns for investors internationally? You're going to look at the IPO market. Uh, so you've got a big juicy segment here. And then the world famous most beloved segment by our friends, presented by our friends at EQ Bank, stocks on our watch list. You have an interesting pick. I have a pick we have never talked about on this podcast, and it's almost thirty billion in market cap. So make sure you stay tuned for that. Neither of like my picks. I it's more like than one that I'm keeping on my radar right now. But I think yours and mine are not. We haven't talked about on the podcast before, so it'll be it'll be interesting. What are we at? Like close to 350 episodes now? Yeah. Yeah. Inching closer by the week. Yeah. A couple episodes a week. Yeah. 350 feels good. We'll have to do something big for 500 because, uh, you know, the show goes on. We'll get there eventually. If you're listening on Spotify, you want to go ahead, go to the podcast there. Make sure you're pressing the follow button on our podcast page on Spotify. You press that follow button, and then when you go into their new episodes tab on Spotify, ours will pop in there every time we have a new show. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, make sure you are subscribed to the show, as well as you can go on there, hit a little five-star rating. You can write something nice, make us feel good. Maybe we'll uh, read some of them on the show this year as well. But uh, of course, we... We need that dopamine hit. We're making all this content. Come on. Uh, Throw us a bone here. So appreciate that, Apple podcast listeners and Spotify podcast listeners. Simon, if I was to ask you internationally, I mean, this is tough. This is tough. You haven't looked at the data, but do you think of any international developed markets when when you think of amazing compounded returns do you have any specific countries that you might think be at the top of the list? Developed countries, uh, it's kind of hard. So um, I would guess it's mostly Western Europe, Japan, Australia, those type of countries. I know it's not Japan, that's for sure. Australia is probably similar to Canada in terms of returns. Uh, typically, you know, Australia is always similar. That is quite the hunch because they are back to back in the ranking here. Oh, there you of go. Australia yeah. and Canada. So I don't know, maybe like Israel minus last year, or maybe some smaller uh, country in Europe. I would say, yeah, yeah, those are good good ideas. And I'm gonna I'm gonna read it out. The the Scandinavian countries have done fantastic. If if before looking at this data, the the country I would have thought of, which is actually number two on the list, is Sweden, because I am very into studying a lot of the conglomerates grow by acquisition names. And Sweden has like the some of the best fishing grounds of serial acquirer 
compounder bro stocks. So Sweden has been a really good place to hunt, but it is behind Denmark. This data goes from 2009 to 2023. The Denmark stock market has had an 819.9% return during that time, which is more than double the next of Sweden. Now, there is some learnings here, and I'm going to talk about what has, why this is for Denmark and the, you know, the law of tail outcomes very shortly. But I'm going to go, I'm going to rifle through the list here. First, we have Denmark, Sweden, and then NLD. What's that one? Uh, the yeah, Netherlands. Netherlands. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Netherlands. Uh, New Zealand. Interesting. CHE, that is Switzerland. And then we have Australia, Canada, Norway, France. EAFE, what's that? That is, that's oh, that's the, the index. Area. That's the yeah, index. Yeah. Okay, I was yeah. going to say, what is that? that yeah, that's your, or Europe, I think, Africa, like something like that, yeah. Yeah, when they say like MSCI EAFE index, I just always see it beside MSCI, so I didn't even know yeah. what I was looking at. And then um, what do we got here? Hong Kong, Belgium. Great Britain, Germany is what is that one? SPG. That might, just, might maybe that's Singapore. Just Singapore. Yeah, Singapore. Good call. Yeah. yeah. Japan, Finland, Austria, Italy, Spain, Israel. I think that's right. ISR uh, is Israel correct? And then Portugal at the bottom. So that is the order of those countries. And the reason that I actually wanted to bring this segment up is not to rifle through which countries have quite the range too in terms of returns during that time period, right? Uh, From 2009 to 2023, you have Portugal that has like, let's round it up to 40%, and then Denmark, which is (laughs) close to a thousand percent. Well, not close, but 890. 820. Yeah. 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 Pretty wild. And there is a huge discrepancy there. The only one I missed there was Ireland, which slots between Singapore and Japan. Sorry to my my friends in Ireland and my Irish listeners here. I uh, didn't mean to skip out on you there. What The main reason that I want to bring this up, Simon, is when I saw this data, my brain goes, why? What happened in Denmark? You know, we were just talking about Good old Novo Nordisk and good old Ozempic. Yeah, yeah. We're just yeah, talking yeah, about that on. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> We're just talking about that on the podcast. This is what happens when you have extreme outlier returns. So Novo Nordisk is now what, like a four hundred and fifty? Without looking, just off the top of my head, roughly half a trillion in market cap. Close enough, and. Denmark's index today, 22% of the stock market index is Novo Nordisk. And it has generated most of the compounded annual growth of the entire index. And this is what happens in portfolios. This happens time and time again of every really successful track record of investing. And in this case, moving an entire country's index forward is you have one or two ideas that generate all of the outsized returns. 
and 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 if you don't trim them because these are market cap weighted the you know the index isn't trimming it uh it's only trimming it if the stock goes down it's actually just buying more and more and more as the momentum continues and as this thing has ridden to half a trillion in market cap you get extreme results from just a few names during that exact time frame from january of 2009 to current day ending 2023, the total return for Norvo Nordisk was 3,141%. When you consider that it was, you know, during that time frame, 10 to now 22% of the index, the numbers start to make a lot more sense. So I think there's a lot of important takeaways here when you look at data and statistics, you see extreme outliers. It's not always that hard to figure out what it is when you have a glaring outlier like Novo Nordisk in Denmark. Yeah, and I I mean, I think it's a good counterbalance to the argument of trimming. Obviously, if you have stock in your portfolio, some that may have done really well, it can become a big position. You always have to, you know, keep an eye on it, whether you're comfortable with not trimming, that's fine. I think there's no issues with trimming if people have a certain allocation that they want to keep and they don't want to exceed that's also fine i mean i think it's more of a personal preference and also understanding the investment right we saw in 2021 and i wish i would have done it more at the time i did trim a little bit but i had teledoc for those listening to you know you don't need to take my word for it. Look at the chart. You'll see what I mean. You just need to to look at the chart. And tell a dog what happened. And a lot of growth companies during that time is the devaluation just got really stretch out of hand. And, you know, I think it would have been beneficial for me to trim more. Obviously, I think you have to look at on a case by case basis, but also on a personal basis, what what amount of risk you're comfortable with, because we've done episodes on that before. But allocation is one of your best tools to mitigate risk or increase it, depending what you're you're kind of looking for. That's right. Like portfolio construction and those kind of decisions are so overlooked because it's personal, right? Like everyone's different appetite for this kind of stuff, but those decisions matter so much. And for me, I mean, look at, look at our, look no further than you actually. Either, either of our portfolios, our success has been from just a few key names in the portfolio. Mm -hmm. And that's going to continue to happen. That will that that is how this works. It's not the exception. That is how portfolios typically work and how all great investment track records typically play out is just from a few key ideas with the right amount of conviction to hold them through the ups and downs that generates these outsized returns. All right, Mr. Belanger, you have a look at the IPO market. Yeah, yeah, and feel free to interject here. I think it's going to be a fun one. I've looked at this report before, so uh, I think they do it on a quarterly basis, but obviously uh, this is for pretty much all of 2023. I think the data was as of December 4, 2023. So EY, so Ernst & Young, one of the big four accounting firms, they do this report on the global IPO market. And I'm always fascinated because, you know, especially in recent years, we've seen the IPO market uh, being a bit of a roller coaster ride. And I think I, you know, that's almost putting it lightly. 
whether you're looking at volume, whether you're looking at total proceeds. Uh, but before I get to it, in terms of investing, if you're a new investor and I, you know, and you're looking at IPOs, thinking that it's it's a wonderful idea to invest in them, you know, it may be a good idea, but make sure you do your research. Personally, I like to wait a little bit after the company has gone public, just because there's just so many things that change when a company goes public, and sometimes management just doesn't react all that well to the change, right? You're going from a private company where there's not a lot of scrutiny to a public one where if you mess up and you're a relatively large company, you will get investors kind of, you'll hear from investors. Uh, and sometimes you'll hear from activist investors, which will try to get a seat on the board. So there's all these different kind of dynamics. And if you wait a little bit, like let's say typically my rule is about a year, I get a general sense of how the company is doing, how management is reacting on conference calls, how the business is actually doing following the IPO. So that's what I like to do. Before I go on to the numbers, like anything you wanted to add to that? No, I think you touched on two key things there, right? Where it's <laughs> being a public company CEO and being a private company CEO is very different in both cases you're trying to create value but the pressure and the the pressure to have short termism of performance is immense and that can get to a lot of public company CEOs if it's their first rodeo and then two i i totally agree i mean i'm trying to think of if if i bought any company in its first year of of being public i'd have to look through but i i I don't think so because yeah, you have the S1 data, but I'm like you, I, I'm not rushing to buy anything really just generally as an investor, I'm looking to, uh, you know, buy and have really low portfolio turnover. So a year here, a year there in the stock market is really just a flash in the pan. Yeah, and the S1 is simply when a company goes public, it's basically their prospectus. They issue that and it's just to show investors what they've done. Uh, it's a bit like an annual report, but it gives a, a more of a kind of general history and there's financial information as well. So you get a better sense of what the company is about. Yeah, That's right. Now, the data, like I said, it goes from January 1st, 2023 to December 4th. Let's just say it's 2023, close enough. And also, there's typically not that much action in December. Uh, so I don't think we're missing that many IPOs that would have happened between December 5th and the end of the year. Now, 2023 was a slow year in terms of IPO, despite it being a good year for equities. Um, that was one of their key, key takeaways. And typically, a strong equity market will lead to a strong IPO. IPO market, which was not the case last year. And we can just look back at 2020 and 2021. 2020 actually was a odd year because we had the pandemic that started early in the year. The first half, like you, I remember there was IPOs that were being like paused and put on hold. And then as things started, you know, become clearer in terms of the pandemic, governments obviously were provided businesses with support and the market actually picked back up. Companies started IPOing and the back half, and it continued well into 2021. It didn't happen last year, mostly because like we've talked in recent episodes, I mean, a lot of the stock market's return were concentrated in a very few names. So it was still a very lukewarm market when it came to the IPO market. And that's something they noticed. Typically, when equities do well, when stocks do well, 
you see a lot of IPOs. Anything to comment there? No, no, look no further than 2021 there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It dried up so quick, right? Yeah, exactly. So 2022 was also not a great year for IPOs. And they also believe that investors were more attracted to blue chip mega cap stocks, like we mentioned, the Magnificent Seven, in the face of macroeconomic uncertainty over unknown commodities in terms of IPOs, because a lot of IPOs are not necessarily big companies. Obviously, there are some large companies that do IPO, but for the most part, as you'll I'll mention the data, it was definitely smaller companies, at least in 2023. They also said aggressive monetary tightening policy also had a major effect. So rising rates had an effect because there was less investor demand when they can get 5% from U.S. government bonds, U.S. treasuries. You know, that IPO that might be exciting is a little less exciting when you can get some really safe returns at very little risk. And there was also a mismatch in the valuation expectation from potential IPO candidates and investors. So I thought that was really interesting takeaway. So you have companies that, and Brayden, you're quite familiar with this space, right? You're doing seed rounds as a startup. And we saw companies raising at billions of dollars in 2020, 2021, even probably early 2022. And then these companies are trying to go public and they're seeing that the valuations are actually less than their latest seeding round or funding round. That's right. I mean, there's no two more scary words for a venture-backed startup than down round. Yeah. (laughs) Down round is basically death unless you have enough momentum and enough traction where investors are willing to back you and give give you the capital you require. A down round just means you raise more money at a valuation less than your previous funding. So (laughs) no one's happy. Everyone hates you (laughs) once once that happens, right? Like no one's happy uh, in this scenario. And one thing you're talking about, this is a bit of a side note, but I wanted to, to bring it up as you were saying. This is the reason why I've never been super, I've never really wanted to own the exchanges or even a TSX, like a TMX group, which is ticker X on the TSX, is this is very cyclical. And I know there a lot of these businesses are far more diversified than just listing fees, but investment banks and these exchange businesses, pure play, are very cyclical when it comes to IPO listings and, and exchange fees that they're going to be generating off of that. It's it's a tough business. It, it it's a great business, but it doesn't come without its flaws. Uh, you know, it's 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 like a geographical monopoly, but still highly cyclical, which is a very rare combination of a company. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, also like investment banks, I always think about Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs that are very heavily in that kind of investment banking. But I totally agree with that. I think we're seeing that, yes, there's a lot of factors affecting that. They also pointed to geopolitical tensions that uh, would have had an impact. And typically investors will get more conservative when there's a lot of geopolitical tensions, which, of course, we've been seeing. Uh, You can only uh, think about, obviously, the conflict in 
Ukraine, what's happening in the Middle East. And there was 54% of planned IPOs in 2023 that were postponed, which is a massive increase compared to previous 53%? years. 53%? Yeah. Of IPOs that were planned got postponed. So more yeah, than half. sorry, fifty four percent. I was off by one percent, oh. but uh, <laughs> so more than half. Wow, okay, more than half. And we saw an increase in twenty twenty two. So they twenty eight percent got postponed in twenty twenty two, which was still higher than average. Typically, on a normal year, you'll see between uh, around like fifteen twenty percent of IPOs that are postponed. It could be multiple reasons, right? That an IPO gets postponed, but fifty four percent. That's 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 an anomaly compared to what we've seen at least in the past decade. Uh, so I thought that was really interesting. I mean, twenty twenty three was just. Really strange year. So there's other key takeaways here. Looking at it globally, and then I'll drill down a little bit more by geographical regions. Obviously, I'll touch on Canada, which was not a good year for IPOs in Canada. But globally, 2023 saw... 1,298 IPOs, which was a 8% decline from 2022. I'm talking about volumes here. And the total proceeds from these IPOs were $123.2 billion, which was a 33% decline in total proceeds. And keep in mind, 2022 was not a good year compared to 2021. So it's down from 2022, and 2022 was massively down from 2021. Now, the Americas, this includes North America. Central America and South America. There was 153 IPOs, which was 15% increase from last year. Needless to say, most of these came in the US. It was a 12%, it was 12% of the global volume. Total proceeds were 30, 23 billion, which was a 155% increase from last year. It was 18% of the global proceeds and, again, was dominated by the U.S. market, both in volume and proceeds. Canadian exchanges saw a decline of more than 50% in IPOs, going from 42 to 19. There was only one IPO on the TSX, which was Lithium Royalty, which is down oh, yeah. 50% from the IPO. <laughs> I, so, I know the guys who started that. Really, huh? Yeah, I they run a really well-known fund in oh, wealth okay, management okay. shop yeah. in Toronto. They run a really well-known one. It's called Waratah. And I think they have 5 billion AUM uh, assets under okay. management. Okay, and then yeah. they have this lithium royalty corp as a separate business, same ownership group. Yeah. And then okay. they also have this huge real estate company that has like cottages in Muskoka. So they run these three separate businesses together. And the guy who, who runs all of it, I'm playing golf with him, and I I just paired I got paired up with this random guy on like a Tuesday afternoon. Really? Okay. He he, <laughs> he hands me his his business card. It's like Warthog Capital Management. And I was like, oh dude, I tried to like pitch you guys to buy like FinChat recently. <laughs> like okay. I didn't really know what he did or whatever. I was like five billion AUM. I, I I finished the round of golf, and I was like. Now I know why this guy has like six or seven golf memberships. Like, holy smokes. Take his boat over be, from Lake Joe. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, he's doing all right. He's going to do all right despite uh, the IPO not uh, That's right, being yeah. that good. But uh, the proceeds were a whopping $100 million for the Canadian IPO market. And people might be saying, well, you said there was 19 IPO, but only one on the TSX. Yes, there are other exchanges in Canada. There's the, I think they changed name, but there's, there was the NEO exchange because they got bought, right? 
Neo Exchange. I think the venture is probably separate from the TSX, the way they count that as well. But uh, very meager year for Canadian IPOs. And Canada also had some poor performance from its pandemic IPOs as a whole, which has resulted in them being taken private at values lower than our IPO plan. So they actually had a note specific to Canada regarding that. And they said that this is influencing companies that are potentially go like exploring going public in Canada because obviously the recent IPOs have not done that well and it you know as a company owner if you're looking to go public this obviously would influence you 86% of IPOs from the Americas were US IPOs smaller IPOs continue to dominate IPO activity in the US with nearly 70% of them raising less than 25 million which is crazy they said in previous decades these small IPOs average only 10% of the overall volume per year so a a really big shift in terms of the type of IPOs Um, so like really 2023 the more i read this report the more i'm like wow 2023 was a a very weird year in terms of ipos uh technology and healthcare definitely dominated ipos for north america the top three ipos people probably know all these companies arm moldings or arm moldings the chip making company or the semiconductor company which ipo'd from the vision fund right that's what that's right yeah yeah uh... that's right the SoftBank one? SoftBank, there you go. Yeah, that's the name I was looking at. CanView, which is the consumer division, consumer product division from Johnson & Johnson. So obviously, clearly a big IPO there. And last but not least, if you like sandals, Birkenstocks was the uh, third biggest IPO in terms of proceeds. Now, Asia Pacific, and I won't go into that much detail for Asia Pacific in the next region, but still high level numbers. Um, this is actually where the action was as a percentage of the global I- IPO market decline compared to last year but still very high percentage so 732 ipo which was a 18 percent decline but it still represented 56 percent of the global volume they had 69.4 billion in proceeds which was a 44 percent decline but again that was 57 percent of the global proceeds china surprisingly still dominated here despite a sharp decline compared to last year in both volume and proceeds and one of the areas that really stood out when i read it was Indonesia. The IPO volume increased 32% to 79% and the proceeds increased 60% to $3.6 billion. So that was a, an interesting takeaway. And the last region here is the Europe, Middle East, India, and Africa. 413 total IPOs, which was a 7% increase represented 30% of the global volume, generated 31.1 billion of proceeds for a 39% decline. However, it was still 25% of the global share. And India, obviously here, uh, dominated with 220 IPOs and 6.9 billion in proceeds. And I do have an interesting chart that I took and I bet you you'll be interested in this one because it kind of contradicts <laughs> what we were saying at the beginning. Uh, you know, you may want to wait a year for IPOs. Well, looking at all the 2023 IPO returns, so as a whole versus the benchmark index for the different regions. So the regions, you have U.S., Europe, mainland China, Hong Kong, Japan, India, and Indonesia. Well, the IPO market surpass the index in every single one of them except one market and that's the US. 
And in some of them, I mean, it's pretty wild, right? Indonesia. It's nothing, like, nothing was beating <laughs> the uh, Magnificent Seven last year. So, yeah. Yeah, I thought this this chart was just really interesting to look at. Look at like you look at Indonesia. Obviously, clearly it's smaller, but two hundred fifty one percent returns for the IPOs, four percent for the uh, index over there, the IDX composite. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's quite the difference in India. Same thing. Japan had some strong performance from some of these. Same with mainland China and Europe. So the IPOs had strong returns from what you're showing here. I still think it's never a bad idea to do more research on a company before you own it. Just blanket statement. Yeah, exactly. And the last couple of things I wanted to touch on. So in terms of IPO pipeline by sector, that's really interesting as well. So 27% technology, 16% healthcare, 14% consumer, 12% industrial, financials, 10%. And then it's just uh, the like basically it's others and uh, real estate, energy and materials that are in the low single digit. Technology was clearly uh, one of the biggest areas like it is in and the most recent years. Energy was pretty interesting. A bit of a surprise here, but renewable energy, battery commodities, and e-mobility companies led the charge in the energy department, especially some of the top deals were in China, India, Indonesia, and the Philippines. And in North America, IPOs in the energy sector were mostly in the oil and gas exploration and logistic and equipment. And the last thing I'll, I'll read here, because I... As people know that I've been listening for a little bit, I've been very critical of private equity and how they calculate those returns. And they have a section on that. And I thought it was really interesting. So essentially, one of the exit for private equities when they own a business is to bring it back and uh, do an IPO. And they said that for private equity, IPO exists have been muted for P-backed companies over the past 18 months as the IPO window has been mostly closed. Other exit options have also been challenging. So what they're saying here is that there's really, you know, it's going to be challenging from some of these private equity funds to realize the gains. Obviously, there are other ways for them to exit their positions. But again, they are saying that in terms of the... Uh, realizing those gains, it's significantly dropped. So essentially, they're on track to return 9% of invested capital back to their limited partners. So investors in these private equity funds, that's compared to an average of 15% in 2022, and about 20 to 25% in a normal average year. So essentially, what that means, it's not the total returns, it's just the number of the percentage of deals that they're able to exit in terms of the IPO market, which I thought very interesting because that's they have to exit the deal to be able to realize returns. So anything before that that a private equity fund does, it's estimated return. It's never realized until they actually exit out of the position. So I thought that was really interesting that they put that in there as well. While you've been talking, I've been in a rabbit hole on TSX <laughs> listings. Okay. <laughs> it's been drier than the Sahara Desert. For TS for the TSX, it's oh, been yeah. worse than I thought. Like you know, <laughs> I didn't realize that uh, the um, lithium royalty was the only IPO of twenty three. I didn't know either. When I saw that, I'm like, that has to be like <laughs> that has to be a mistake or something. 
I was shocked to see that. And, you know, now I'm on this rabbit hole. It's It's been worse than I thought. The TSX has not produced. There hasn't been anything. Like, there hasn't been anything notable, like, at all for a long time now. Yeah, so they're, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting report. I will put it in the show notes. So I didn't do the whole report, right? I, I took the points that I thought were really interesting. But um, I encourage people to look at it. Really, I like doing this report every year just because it's it's so fascinating. I find just to look at what happened and the different changes. And definitely 2023 was a strange year. It solidifies what we say time and time again on this podcast. I see so many, you know, listeners of this show, Canadian investors who contribute online, own 100% of their portfolio in TSX listed stocks. I see this. There's been basically no new IPOs coming on to the TSX. That is not a way I would suggest anyone invest is only be 100% wholly invested on the TSX. This is the Canadian Investor Podcast. We love this country. We love the businesses in this country, but we're here to make money. And that is an insane way to invest. So uh, I know some people are getting called out right now and they're feeling a little (laughs) uncomfortable. I, I stand by it. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, for self-directed investor, you choose what you invest in. I mean, we're pretty vocal on it. You know, I think we look at it from a numbers perspective and also what is Canada's total, you know, the stock market compared to the global uh, stock market. It's what, 3%? I think it's a very low single digit. So you have to take that into account and how much exposure as a whole in your everyday life you have to the Canadian economy. Yeah, well said. All right, let's move on to stocks on our watch list presented by our friends at EQ Bank. By the way, EQ Bank's, I think, 20 straight years of quarterly growth. I was looking at the stock the other day. It's like very attractively priced. This is not a comment on anything because they're a sponsor. I've been a shareholder for a long time before they sponsored the show. Attractive growth stock, attractively priced growth stock. All right, let's talk about my pick here. I'll go first. We'll go on to you. You have an ETF, a funny ETF. Yeah. And a kind of company as well at the end. Yeah. Oh, do you? Okay. I didn't see Yeah. That. Okay. I have a stock. I don't believe, correct me if I'm wrong, nearly $30 billion in market cap that I don't think we've ever talked about, which is shocking to me. Um, but I don't it, think, I think we have. The, I, don't, I think it's the truth. So it's no surprise to anyone and to you that I like these wide moat financials, companies that are like bucketed as financials, but they're not banks. Basically, companies that participate in financial transactions and stuff and credit, but don't take on any credit risk. It's like long credit, but short credit risk. And Sometimes those companies are even spun out of the banks, like Visa, for example, which is a story probably for another day. Businesses that are entrenched in the financial system for multiple decades, S&P, Moody's, for instance, they're involved in credit, but they don't take on credit risk. Visa and MasterCard, they facilitate transactions and credit, but they don't take on any credit risk. Fun fact, Henry Poor where the name Standard & Poor's came from after the merger of those two companies. He started the publication 
of the financials and credit risks of railroad businesses in 1860. 164 years ago, the inception of this business. We're talking about companies that have been so entrenched for so long, and they usually have regulatory capture monopolies. Like after the Great Depression, they said, okay, you have to get your bond rated by one of the premier credit rating agencies, Fitch, S&P, or Moody's. Nice margins and above average growth because they have capital allocation and optionality to grow other businesses, spin out new software with the data, all this stuff. The pick today on our stocks on my watch list is the Fair Isaac Corporation, aka FICO. Ticker FICO. People have probably heard your FICO score, like your credit score. It is pretty much a royalty monopoly on credit scores. By running data from the three national credit bureaus in the US, Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax. Side note, Equifax is another fantastic place to hunt. Uh, I love these businesses. So what does FICO do? And, and instead of me you know, writing it out, I literally got FinChat to write this for me. I said, what does FICO do on FinChat? Fair Isaac Corporation FICO is a software company and uh, analytics company that develops software analytics, data management products and services through their two segments, scores and software. The scores business, which I think is the crown jewel of the business, they have this credit score business and it is a regulatory capture monopoly. And then the other segment is software where they have, you can basically use the software to uh, make credit decisions for, you know, taking on credit risk of customers you may have. So that's basically where they exist. It's it's helping helping these institutions and these banks make decisions around credit and credit worthiness of their customers or potential customers. And that's done through this FICO score that you've probably heard of. Now, the company has grown revenues in that score segment from around 180 million to 750 million over the last 10 years, which is a compound annual growth rate of around 16%. The stock over the last 10 years during that time, has returned 1,800% total return. It's been one of the best performing stocks in the entire S&P 500. And annual recurring revenue from that software division is now up at a run rate of nearly $700 million. Now, does this company grow like a weed? No. But it has a regulatory capture royalty monopoly. And it is a fantastic business to be in. It is not cheap. The stock trades at at a forward PE ratio of 38. It trades at 27 times next year's EBITDA, 35 times next year's free cash flow. So these are multiples that you're used to seeing for really high quality, steady growers. It's a rich multiple. But it's been rich. <laughs> it's like it's been pretty rich for a while. This is a name where it's on my watch list because I don't see it getting past the workbench. Like, how do you justify the the multiple based on the growth? I get it. It's so high quality, but kind of everyone knows that it's high quality. So this is a kind of a name where you wait for a fat pitch, you wait for bad news, you wait for a, a broad market downturn to get a piece of you know a company that's been around for a long time and probably going to be around for a lot longer. 
No, it's a good name. I didn't realize, obviously, I knew about FICO scores. I didn't realize that the name was Fair Isaac Corporation. Because <laughs> when I saw it, I'm like, I saw FICO. I'm like, is it this company that does a FICO score? But I wasn't <laughs> sure when I Googled their name. But they, right. what I pulled up right now is their free cash flow per share, which has uh, been pretty impressive. I'll just say that. Yeah, it's yeah, just no basically a, almost a straight line to the right. You know, little dips here and there, but nothing pretty consistently to the right. Yeah. They have really poured it on in the last five years. September 15th, I guess getting closer to closer to 10 years, but in the last five years, they've really poured it on. You're looking at six bucks in free cash flow per share five years ago to trailing 12 months of like 19 bucks of free cash flow per share. So a clean, a clean 3x basically. Yeah, I mean, since twenty since twenty eighteen, they've grown the free cash flow per share at a compound annual growth rate of twenty four percent. So that's that's really impressive, and and done so very steadily. Like yeah, and so you know, I like these kinds of companies. They have mm-hmm. very wide moats. They typically have regulatory capture. They're involved in credit, but they don't take credit risk, which is like my favorite business. And I have a segment for next week's show. I found an investor managing $5 billion in the U.S. that just owns these names. In my research, I was trying to figure out if anyone has been on my wavelength. And oh, buddy, I've just been on this guy's wavelength because he's been doing it for <laughs> 25 years and made a ton, a ton of money. I'm going to do a segment on uh, this investor I found that manages $5 billion with these companies. Nice. No, no, that's uh, that'll be interesting, and I think that's a really good pick. So for me, I'm gonna be looking. I definitely have it on my radar. So uranium ETFs, but also there's a Canadian company as well that I have on my radar. So I'll just give a bit of background as to why I have uranium ETFs on my radar. So I mean, it all comes back, and obviously, like. You know, I think the differences in our approach are kind of shining here. Why I'm looking a bit more at the micro, uh, sorry, macro world in this investment. So clearly, you know, this is just a kind of quick summary, but the world needs energy that does not emit any direct carbon emissions, which nuclear does not. The world needs uh, like energy that's also constant, not intermittent. So it, Solar and wind, for example, are great, but they're intermittent sources. So when the sun doesn't shine, no energy is produced by solar. And the same goes when the wind is not blowing. And obviously, solar works better in certain climates than others. Solar doesn't work all that well in in Ottawa at this time of the year. I'll just say that, right? Like the sun is just, even when it's the sun is shining, it's not very powerful. And the on the other end is true, right? Solar can produce too much power where, you know, you can't use it all when you need it. Sure, you could use battery storage, but there's already high demand for the material to make these batteries like cars, like all, you know, laptops, pretty much anything that has a lithium battery. So at some point, you know, I don't know the exact data on that, but there is a lot of demand for that. And extracting those material is not carbon neutral, to say the least. So that's another issue. The reality is that nuclear is a great option for places where solar, wind, hydro, for example, are not available. And it seems like 2023, we finally started to turn a corner on nuclear power. Is that your sense as well? It seems like now the 
the discourse around nuclear power seems to be shifting a bit more where um, a lot more countries seem to be open to it and embracing it. I have two thoughts. I have the first thought, which was, which is I, I sure hope so, because that's just the logical thing to, to do here. I, I have spent a lot of time in, in this area, as you know, professionally yeah. w- with, with clean power and working at the nuclear plants here in Ontario. And it is the best. You have base load clean power at scale and and now modular with some of the new technology that's coming out. So I, I hope we're turning a corner. But I thought we were turning a corner and then I see a net decrease of active reactors in Europe. You know, the Europe said, oh, we're so clean. You know, we're, we're so forward thinking here. Watch what they do, not what they say with these kinds of things. And so I'm a little pessimistic, but I, I sure hope you're right. I mean, this is the cl- the only problem with nuclear is not the waste. I've got, I, I'm not going to debate the waste on the podcast here. <laughs> but no, that's I know I know it inside out. I'm happy to chat with people offline. The if you don't go modular and you go full scale, like you know, full multi-gig, like four gigawatt reactors and stuff like that. The engineering time and lead time and construction time and refurbishment time is extensive. The capital outlay is extensive. And so that's the real the real drawback from getting financial incentive. So I'm hoping that we see real uptake from more modular solutions that don't have these gigantic engineering lead times, giant risk assessment studies, approvals out the yang yang and 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 not to mention the actual construction of them taking, you know, sometimes up to a decade. So that's that's my only kind of beef with the energy source. No, and that's good. That's great. And obviously, I think also Europe is starting to get a bit of a reality check on terms of nuclear and why they like, you know, and the consequences of decommissioning some and thinking about Germany here and also not investing enough in nuclear power compared to other sources of energy. And I think, you know, in the next I'm hopeful that in the next five to 10 years, there's going to be a shift because I, I personally think the, like the more I read on it, the more I think it's part of the solution. And it offers a lot of very good qualities. And even when people think about hydro, right, I'm from Quebec, we learn in school about northern Quebec around the James Bay area, all these massive dams that were put. I think it's La Grande Arme, and there's several of them for Quebec. And that's all nice and dandy, but it's trade-offs, right? Yeah, sure, it's carbon. It doesn't emit any carbon, but it's very disrupted to the environment around these areas that the dams have been put in place. So it is definitely trade-offs, and I think there's a lot of focus about carbon emissions, and rightfully so, but there are other environmental impacts with this kind of solar power, wind power, hydro, that I think also need to be taken into account. And oftentimes I find they're like just kind of brushed off to the side, even thinking about solar power, right? A lot of people think it's great. Well, what happens if you have golf ball size hail that hits a solar panel? There's a good chance it might get damaged, and if it gets damaged, you have to repair it. There's additional costs, and it's not necessarily a cost-effective, you know, as cost-effective when that happens. So there's all these different things you have to factor in. Yeah, I'd have to look at 
what the actual life pla- life cycle replacement is with weather and that kind of stuff. I don't have any data on that. What I do know is that when I first, my first business ever, I did a 85 kilowatt photovoltaic system on the roof in in the university town that I went to as a business. This is a complete fake it till you make it business that me and <laughs> my roommate were doing. We had the chops, we had the know-how and we knew what we're doing and we got it done. But during that time, I think pan- like from, during that like eight to nine months from like start to finish of the project, the same size panel went from 280 watts to like 385 watts in output in like less than a year. And we're just like, oh shit, we just gave them like, you know, it's like when you, <laughs> it's like in the early gave 2000s. Them all technology. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you buy a computer and it's like, oh, you're still using that piece of junk? Get this new. 3000 uh it's it's like that with the with the panel so i i don't know how fast uh the efficiency is still moving i think we're maybe in hyperspeed at that time but uh i i'd have to do some more research yeah no exactly and you know and to prove the point a little bit that it's becoming more and more i think at least on the forefront and you have various countries considering it more and more as there was the uh, cop 28 meeting that even as a, a statement they said nuclear was part of the su- solution to slow the world's carbon emission and even the canadian federal government changed its stance in 2020 and is now more open to nuclear n- energy as a way to help us reduce our carbon emissions so my thesis here is that there will be uh, more and more demand and more and more appetite for nuclear energy, which requires high-grade uranium. Obviously, you know this, but it's not all kinds of uranium that can be used for that. It's high-grade. And there are two... I guess three main option, maybe a fourth one here. So I was looking at ETFs because, again, I do like ETFs for things that I may just want, like kind of more broad exposure to a specific sector, geography, whatever it is. And that kind of fits the the bill here. So there's two, uh, three big ETFs. There's the Global X Uranium ETF, the Horizons Global Uranium Index ETF, and the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust. So the first one, URA, HURA are the and then u-un.to. I will put them in the show notes if you wanted to have a look at them. Now, the Global X Uranium ETF has fees of 0.69%. It's in US dollars. And the largest holding is Cameco, which is a Canadian company at 25%, Sprott at 11%, NextGen Energy at 7%, and then NAC. Kakatumprum. I'm probably butchering that, but it's basically the largest producer of uranium in the world. It's in Kazakhstan. HURA, their Horizons Global Uranium Index. So the fees are higher. Let's just say 1% fees because it's 0.99. It's in Canadian dollars. That one I don't like as much because the Kazakhstan Stan Company is at 21% here. Kameco is 18%. And Sprott, which is the um, Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, is at 17%. The reason why I don't like this one as much is Kazakhstan is very close to Russia. And I think there is definitely some geopolitical risk that could potentially be possible there. Kazakhstan, without being a geopolitical expert, has been kind of on and off, kind of cold, warm relation with uh, Russia. So I think 
it's a non-zero risk to take into consideration. And then the last one, the Sprott Physical Uranium Trust, which again, by the way, it is part of these two other ETFs. This one has fees of 0.72%. It's traded in Canadian dollars and essentially it owes physical uranium. The one thing I wanted to mention here is Cameco is ticker CCO.TO. It is a Canadian company. It's the world's second largest uranium producer after the uh, Kazakhstan company. I will not try to pronounce it again because I'll butcher it <laughs> once more. <laughs> and Cameco has a market cap of $24 billion, an enterprise value of $23 billion. So they are cash positive. So they have they have a net cash position. They have a fantastic balance sheet. And of course, it's a commodity business, but they actually generate a surprisingly nice and pretty consistent cash flow. And they pay a dividend, but uh, we don't see this very often. It's a yearly dividend. So oh. once a year. Annual. Dive. Yeah, not very. It's a very small dividend too. They are based in Saskatchewan. They have operations in the U.S. They also have some in Kazakhstan and Australia, and along with these ETFs, are definitely on my radar uh, to get exposure to uranium. If I had to choose one ETF for my personal portfolio, it would probably be the URA Global X Uranium ETF in US dollar. Lower fees, I like the allocation that I see compared to the other one, and I also like that it has the, the Sprott ETF within it as well. So that's what I have on my radar. Kind of the bullish case here is that uh, you know, like political leaders around the world kind of wait up and realize that uh, nuclear power can uh, be part of the solution. Cameco's production volumes of uranium has picked up quite significantly. They're doing 28.4, I guess that's in million, uh, 28.4 million pounds of uranium production. This is on FinChat uh, KPI section here for Cameco. And that dropped really low through 19, 20, 21, and it's now picked up to a close to half of what it peaked at there in 2015. So um, in terms of actual production volume of uranium has picked up quite significantly. They have other aspects of their business in terms of- Fuel services, right? Yeah, yeah. fuel services and that kind of stuff, which I'm wondering if that's actually the fueling that they're doing as contractors at the physical- Plants. I think it is. Yeah, I, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. For yeah, if uh, for those not super familiar with this, it's not like gas fuel. It's definitely like fuel for nuclear. <laughs> yeah, they're uranium rods. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And and they and they give them in bundles. They're they're pretty cool looking. An actual reactor face is really cool th looking thing. It's got all these holes. It's this. I'm trying to visualize here on the screen what it looks like but the top's kind of like a trapezoid or like a pentagon it's got all these different holes that they throw yeah the i fuel think i've seen through. picture of those yeah yeah, yeah. in the I've simpsons seen a bunch mostly what's that <laughs> yeah in the in simpsons, the simpsons. <laughs> uh dude i wanted to show you a really cool website and for those who are uh listening here they can go check this out it is called gridwatch.ca gridwatch.ca so you want you, you can you can pull that up and this is Ontario's live electricity grid. Now, you can also track the electricity grid on the system operators for Ontario. It's the independent electricity system operator. Quebec and Manitoba have their own. Uh, I know BC Power Authority has one as well. So you can track all those. But gridwatch.ca does this live up to the oh, minute. Oh, very cool. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. 
And you can see right now, so as of recording this, uh, you know, 4 p.m. in the afternoon, there's a big storm here right now. There's a big snowstorm happening. 45.5% of the grid is done by nuclear. 21.7% is done by hydroelectric. 17.2% is done from gas. 15.3% is from wind, which is much higher than normal given how windy it is out there right now. Uh, biofuels at less than a less than a percent and solar at zero. So pretty interesting. Simon, if you click on each of those things on the left, you can actually drill into which plants are producing mm. which by the actual unit. So if you click in, I'm clicking on the hydro one here. I've been to all of these places. It's pretty, <laughs> Arn Pryor, Ar- Aubrey Falls, Barrett Shoot, the Beck stations in Niagara Falls, Chanel uh, up near you. Yeah. Well, Arn Pryor is pretty close to Arn. Arn Pryor is pretty close. Yeah. The, Ear Falls is in the most northwestern part of the province, yeah. like population zero. Uh, these things, these places are very remote and Almost all of them are operated remotely from a command center uh, locally. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's at gridwatch.ca and make sure you can kind of drill into the different things and, and check it, uh, you know, throughout the, the day. If you click on the, the map there, too, it shows you if we're importing or exporting power uh, into nearby power authorities like New York, Michigan, Minnesota, Manitoba, that kind of stuff. <laughs> we're not importing much. That's basically uh we're importing from Quebec, I guess. Right? PQ. I think that would be it. Uh, let me look here. I don't know. Dot AT. I'd have to look at what that code is. Yeah. But or it's not, a fast fascinating yeah. website. It, the I mean, power generation is obviously extremely important. The Manitoba through to Quebec. And I'm biased here, of course, but I've I've done a lot of work on this. From Manitoba to Ontario to Quebec has the most robust, impressive electricity power generation system in the world. And I mean that because, yes, we have some gas online in Ontario, which is it's all hydro in, in Manitoba and Quebec. We have some gas online here in Ontario. They built way too much capacity for gas here in Ontario, but nearly half of the baseload power is done by nuclear. It's very clean. These, these, uh, these reactors run smoothly all the time. And we just have such a larger population and density that you can't run just 100% off hydro. Yeah. There's just too much demand. Quebec yeah. would be what, like 90% hydro, I would say. Yeah. 100%. Is it 100%? I, I know Manitoba is. Wind. I'm pretty sure yeah. Quebec is as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think it's 100% hydro. I'm going to have to fact check. Yeah. If it's not 100%, okay, it says here Hydro Quebec is 99% of their baseload power. Okay. Pretty close. <laughs> I'll give so. you, we'll round it up to 100. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and then it says here close to 100%. Okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. We get it. So 99.9 maybe. <laughs> but it's know. fair too. like, you know, I do understand the other provinces, right? Like not all provinces have the same, you know, ability to produce electricity in the same fashion as like, you know, Quebec, for example, like it's just their yeah. geography. It's like that. Alberta is, is not able to, you know, invent 
you know waterways <laughs> like yeah um, i think you have to keep that in mind whenever there's that energy conversation that's why i think nuclear is so interesting because you can do it regardless of where you're at as long as you have that technology and the political willingness and the investment to do so 91 percent of british columbia's power comes from hydro so they oh, yeah, that's they, right yeah BC that's more well. than i that's more than i thought i didn't know they were that high i knew they had a pretty clean grid but uh that's really high. No, I mean these people have you know say what you want about uh, you know government decisions around this kind of stuff, but the transition away from coal in a place like Ontario, serving that many people in a major city city like Toronto, is no small feat and, and pretty difficult to do. The only mess up, the only thing that I'll be critical, and I don't work for them anymore, so I can say whatever I want. They obviously built way too much gas capacity. Yeah, they overbuilt. <laughs> the shit out of natural gas capacity it was a complete waste of money well you know what would be uh wouldn't be government without a little waste of money so. <laughs> just, just a little waste in there <laughs> thanks for listening to the podcast folks lots of good ideas coming out of here some names we haven't talked about in a long time and uh, of course the canadian science investor here with uh power generation uranium and nuclear power baby I'll, I'll give the same reminder that I did at the top of the show. If you're on Spotify, hammer that follow button. You can also give us a five-star review there uh, right on the homepage of our podcast on the on the application. And then on Apple Podcasts, Apple Podcast listeners, we need you. You guys are the most important segment in terms of our analytics for ratings and listens. So if you can press that subscribe button, and uh, leave the review. You can also write something nice to to make us feel great. That'll uh, yeah. Cook. Yeah, yeah, just just do it. Just, just yeah. And if it. you have an Android phone, you know, steal your friend's phone who has an iPhone and uh, give us a review on the. That's iPhone. right. That's yeah. That's how yeah. You do it. Just, <laughs> just steal their phone. Say hey, sorry, I just need to do a review. It's 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 not my decision. It's just something I have to do. Exactly. And you're just gonna have to understand that. So steal their phone. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.